Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and 2023 winner of an Award of Merit for Excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations, brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. It's the summer of Barbie. Barbie core, an homage to the stylish doll, is everywhere in fashion and home furnishings. It's time to think pink. So this episode is on Connecticut's own Victorian Barbie dream house, Roseland Cottage in Woodstock. How many shades of pink has Roseland Cottage been? We'll find out. I'll talk to Lori Meshtandaro, site manager of Roseland Cottage Museum, owned by Historic New England. Lori holds a master's degree in American history from the University of Connecticut and is a frequent speaker on Connecticut's historic gardens. Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, as this is the year of pink, we're going to talk about Roseland Cottage. And I want you to, to really describe the outside of this really fairy book cottage type of house to the listeners. Our Victorian Barbie dream house. Well, we are, as you say, a pink house. That's what they call us here in Woodstock, the pink house or a National Historic Landmark because of our architectural significance and because of the man who built the house. But let's talk about the appearance of the house, the Gothic Revival appearance of the house. Rosen, the Gothic Revival is really characterized by a verticality, and that's expressed here at Roseland by board and batten siding that we have rather than classic New England clapboards, which would give such a horizontal orientation. We have board and batten siding giving us a vertical orientation. The Gothic Revival style was originally called the pointed style. And that's obvious why when you come here, because of our very steep roof, our very sharply angled gables that point into the sky, like arrows almost. The finials on top of those gables add to that vertical stretch. We have chimney pots on top of the house, the very latest thing in mid-19th century in the United States. Uh, And there's a lot of Gothic ornamentation on the exterior of the house, things that you might find in medieval Gothic cathedrals in Europe. Of course, that's where we take our idea of the Gothic. Trefoils, I think of them as three-leafed clovers. They would have represented the Trinity in a medieval cathedral. Quatrefoils, or four-leafed clovers, would have been representations of the four evangelists. Those are scattered all over the house. I'm telling you, Mary, every year I find another one there, hidden all over on the house. Stained glass, certainly an important part of the Gothic. Much easier to see from the inside than the outside, uh, but Roseland Cottage has uh, really strikingly beautiful stained glass inside in the downstairs public rooms. Pointed arches, sounds like a funny thing, but it's a really important part of Gothic construction. So it's an important part of Gothic revival ornamentation. Those again, we have scattered all over the outside of the house, All over the inside of the house, this ornamentation continues inside of the house. Our beauty is not just skin deep, Mary. Well, I have to say, as an architectural historian, words like barge boards, finials, pendant (laughs) drops, and crenellations all mean something to me. But the other interesting thing about the Gothic Revival style in this house is that it's all in wood, not in stone. But I have to ask, was it always pink? You know, that is not an uncommon question that we get. 
And the answer is yes, Roseland Cottage has always been pink. In fact, historic New England's paint analysis tells us it's been 13 different shades of pink. Currently, it's what I would call a salmon pink. I'm a Northwesterner. That's a salmon pink to me. And that's the color the house was painted in the 1880s. And Historic New England has chosen the color from the 1880s because when you go inside Roseland, what you see in the public rooms downstairs is a result of a redecoration, what we might think of as a redecoration, that took place in the 1880s. So the color of the exterior, the era of the interior match each other. This house was really built as a summer cottage, a summer retreat for Henry and Lucy Bowen. Who were they? Well, Henry Bowen was actually born right here in Woodstock in 1813. Classic New Englander, reformer, self-made man, went south to Manhattan where he worked for the Tappan Brothers, uh, served a five-year clerkship in their silk importation dry goods business. When his five-year clerkship was over, because they had liked this young New Englander so much, they asked him to join the firm, but he said no. So they did something I think seems a little odd. They set him up in his own silk importation dry goods business. Why would you do that? I think we gained some insight when we look at what happened five years after that. That's when he married Lucy Maria Tappan. He married the boss's daughter, which, by the way, is an often overlooked element of being a self-made man in the 19th century. So he was uh, became by far the most successful silk importer on the eastern seaboard. He made a fortune as a silk importer. Uh, he and Lucy married in 1844. By 1846, it seems they wanted to escape the hot summers of Brooklyn, New York, where they lived. So back they came to Henry's native Woodstock and just across the common from the house he was born in, they built Rosen Cottage. Henry was known not only as a very uh, astute businessman, but he was also a founder and publisher of The Independent, which was Congregationalist-leaning newspaper. Again, classic New Englander. Bowen was a devout member of the Congregationalist faith. It was a temperance newspaper. Bowen was an extremely well-known temperance man. But I think what's most important, what resonates strongly uh, with us today, is that it was one of the most important anti-slavery newspapers in the country. In fact, Abraham Lincoln said he read it every week. It was Mary Todd, Lincoln's wife, who was the subscriber, but she must have let her husband read it when she finished with it because he said he read it every week. I know early in his life, he may have been inspired or influenced by what happened to Prudence Crandall. He mentions that late in his life, but I know the Tappan, of course, the Tappan brothers are both really well-known abolitionists in that time period. So it's interesting to me that, of course, their son-in-law becomes a member of their family and is an abolitionist too. Now, a big house like this, in the 19th century, they might have said cottage, but it's a pretty big house. How many servants would you need to run this house? Well, the first information that we could uh, divine about the servants that were um, on the staff here comes from the 1850 census records. We look at those census records and they tell us there were four young women serving the family here in Woodstock that summer. We feel they probably moved with the family from Brooklyn to Woodstock and back again. They were young Scottish and Irish women. Uh, most of them probably stayed in service for a couple of years and then moved on to something that they, they liked better. That's with the exception of one of those young women. Her name was Jane Stewart. 
She was hired shortly after she arrived from Ireland and she stayed with the Bowens for 50 years. So that's a very long tenure for, for anybody. Uh, what we see as we look at census records, because the records that we have, despite the very extensive records we have on almost everything else at Rosen Cottage, it's a little bit harder for us to find information about the staff. So we look to census records and we note with every 10 year census, the staff has increased and increased and increased. We look at the use of the rooms, of, and for instance, above our barn, we can see that they made rooms there specifically for servants and staff to live in. Even up in our attic, they papered a room, which we feel was probably done uh, to make it a living space for uh, staff members. I have to tell you, though, Mary, I feel sorry for those staff members that lived up there in August because it can get a little warm. Absolutely. Uh, we and then... You know, Bowen had huge 4th of July parties. Four presidents came to celebrate the 4th of July right here at Rosen Cottage with the Bowens. And 15,000 people would come to these parties, the newspapers estimate, or these 4th of July celebrations, the newspapers estimate. But the night before, on July 3rd, Bowen would have 300 of his closest friends for dinner, out uh, buffet dinners out on the grounds here at Rosen Cottage. And we know they had to hire extensive extra staff to help with those kinds of engagements that they had. So we figure probably in the heyday, they may have had as many as maybe 20 different staff members. Also gardeners, we have a beautiful uh, parterre garden, a historic garden here that would have required substantial upkeep. They did a little what we might call gentleman farming. So they had farmhands. Ten children Henry and Lucy had. I know from some of the readings that I've come across that those children also assisted with some of the farm chores. So whereas it's hard for us to come across specific information, we do know that every year the staff increased as the family grew and as the social obligations of the family grew as well. So those four presidents are Ulysses S. Grant, who I'm surprised visited a, a temperance man, but okay. Benjamin Harrison, Rutherford Hayes, and William McKinley. It is amazing that he was influential enough to attract these men to visit. Now, well, Mary, if we lived in the middle part of the 19th century and Henry Bowen had a carriage accident in Saratoga, New York, you read about it all the way out in the LA Times. I'd never heard of Henry Chandler Bowen when I started to work at Rosen Cottage. But I very well may have known his name if I'd lived 130 years earlier. You mentioned the gardens, and I want to say there's a, like 3,000 feet of gardens, and it has this what, what's called a boxwood parterre garden. Mm -hmm. But explain what that looks like. It's very specific. Well, we have 21 different beds, each of them bordered by a boxwood hedge, dwarf English boxwood hedge. And then there are gravel gravel paths between the beds, gravel paths around the exterior of the garden. It's probably influenced by the works of Andrew Jackson Downing, who really didn't like parterre gardens, but acknowledged that some people would want a parterre garden. For a house, a Gothic revival house like Roseland Cottage, if you have a parterre garden, Downing said it should be asymmetrically arranged. So ours isn't in some kind of nice, even, uh, balanced pattern like you might see in a classical parterre garden. It's uh, asymmetrical. It has a real sense of movement in it. 
But what you notice when you come see it are the masses of color that stand out against the boxwood uh, edging. Our gardener has done a tremendous job. Uh, every year, the garden is more beautiful. Uh, some of the beds are planted in what's called ribbon or carpet planting, where you have colors that establish patterns in the garden. The main bed uh, is supposed to look like an oriental rug, which also stresses the connection between the interior of the house and the exterior uh, garden. It should be, they should be connected. You step out of the front door almost into the garden that looks like an oriental rug. Uh, geranium's a very big plant in our garden, very popular with Andrew Jackson Downing and, and uh, so many other different plants that establish the masses of color that Downing really wanted. Uh, to show up against the boxwood parterre. We try to keep our plants to plants that would be uh, normal in the 1880s, which is the year we interpret the garden to. So we, instead of impatience, for example, we plant balsam. Petunias were very popular at that time, along with alyssum. So we have carpet planting in those and lots of other plants uh, that really may not be that familiar with uh, today's gardeners. But once they see them, they'll want to put them in their own gardens. Oh, it is stunning. I think your website says there's at least 35 different kinds of perennials, the plants that come back every year, and thousands of annuals, which you have to plant every year just to get that colorful effect. We put in 6,000 annuals every spring at the end of May. Now, the first time I saw Woodstock Cottage, there were two things that were being restored uh, under a grant program that I worked on at the Connecticut Historical Commission. I want to talk about the first one, which was the bowling alley. Now, our, famous bowling, bowling alley. Famous our famous bowling, bowling alley. Our bowling alley is certainly not the first bowling alley in this country. People have been bowling for centuries, but it is the oldest remaining bowling alley in the country. When you come visit Rosen Cottage and you stand in our bowling alley, you will never stand in an older bowling alley in this country. It was built when the house was built in 1846. Bowling, 10-pin bowling was super popular in the 1840s. Nine-pin bowling had been what most bowling was before then, but it was outlawed in Connecticut in the 1830s. Oversimplification to say they just plopped down another pin and got around the law, but that's kind of what happened. There's a story we like to tell about our bowling alley, and uh, if you don't mind, Mary, about U.S. Grant's visit uh, to Rosen Cottage in 1870, that first presidential visit for that first Fourth of July celebration. Grant went out to the bowling alley with Henry Bowen. Grant had never bowled before. He selected one of the bowling balls, rolled it, and bowled a strike. First try, he wanted to celebrate. So U.S. Grant, being U.S. Grant, he pulled a cigar out of his pocket. Well, not in Mr. Bowen's bowling alley. Henry Bowen told him he didn't approve of smoking. He didn't allow it. And uh, if Grant wanted to smoke his cigar, he would have to step outside to do it. And uh, Herbert Bowen, one of Henry and Lucy's sons, child number seven, tells us Grant snuck out to the garden and smoked to his heart's content. So it's not only the oldest bowling alley, it might be the only one you could never smoke in. I thought it was interesting when I read on your website that the nine pin bowling was outlawed by the state of Connecticut because it was associated with drinking and gambling. To be honest, I've never associated with bowling, but you know, this was the 1840s. 
So that additional pin made all the difference. So you can you can see that bowling alley when you visit in the barn. And there's actually a description of that in uh, one of his uh, directions on building the house too. So it's I think it's 53 feet long, and it's you know straight ahead. And how, and how many balls are they? Are they made out of wood? Oh gosh, you, you know I don't even know how many. We have every bowling ball in the collection of Roseland Cottage on display in the bowling alley. They're made out of a wood called lignum vitae. It's tropic wood from the ironwood family. So dense that if you drop it in water, it sinks like a stone. And they say that uh, it gets harder over time. So our bowling balls are probably the equivalent of cannonballs by this time, I figure. But they're all different sizes. The bowling balls are from people come in and they say that it was a candle pin because they're, they're some small ones and there's some ones that we associate more with 10 pin bowling. But the fact is there just wasn't standardized rules for bowling until about 1895, which certainly is later than the date that our bowling alley was built in 1846. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. I just recently saw this exhibit and I couldn't recommend it more highly. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibition, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve is now on display. Learn more about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibition supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit with free admission at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. Hey fellow students, with classes soon approaching, I know how valuable reliable sources are for research projects and papers. That's why Connecticut Explored Magazine is my go-to for compelling stories about Connecticut history, exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. If you're a history lover or student like me, I know you'll appreciate this magazine. Visit ctexplore.org slash subscribe to purchase your discounted student subscription today for only $20 a year. You know, this was a summer house, and I think we all think of summer houses, especially in Connecticut, as being along the shore. But how would the Bowens get to the house, and how long would they use it every summer? That's a great question, because people couldn't spend, people like the Bowens wouldn't be able to spend summers in places like Woodstock until the railroad reached out into the country side. And that happened in Putnam, which is the closest uh, town to Woodstock in the 1830s. So the Bowens would go from New York to Putnam on the trains. So how long would they stay oh. in the summer? How many weeks? Uh, I'd generally say from May to October. Mr. Bowen wasn't able to spend the whole summer here. He would go back and forth to tend to his business interests in Manhattan, uh, but generally from May to October. Bowen loses his money in the silk trade at a certain point in his career, but remains a wealthy man. What was that story? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Historic New England has an initiative called Recovering New Eng England's Voices, where we're trying to talk more about marginalized communities. I thought that would be an easy story at Rosen Cottage. We'd just have to amplify Mr. Bowen's uh, abolitionist views. But well, let me back up a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. Mr. Bowen's silk business went bankrupt in 1857 because so many of his customers were Southerners. He was a silk merchant. He was not selling 
to sharecroppers. He was selling to the planter class. He would not support the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. He was roundly condemned by almost every other New York merchant. I think there were two New York merchants out of the 5,000 uh, that they name who would not support the Fugitive Slave Act. He said, my goods, not my principles are in the market, which at the time was considered to be a very virtuous statement, but it lost him most of his Southern customers. Now, how that ties in with renewing, uh, recovering New England's voices, it tells us that he was very, he was very committed to anti-slavery, to abolitionism, but he had a lot of Southern customers, planter class Southern customers. So all, we have to acknowledge the fact that part of his fortune was the result of enslaved labor and part of the monies that went to build Rosen Cottage were also the result of enslaved labor. Now, he did lose that business. He had his newspaper, The Independent, that he had founded in 1848. It took a while for The Independent really to be something that generated any income. But what really took the Bowens into the big bucks was the Continental Fire Insurance Company. Mr. Bowen and some of his Manhattan associates couldn't get adequate insurance for their Manhattan businesses, so they started their own insurance company. It still does business today as CNA. I looked it up a while ago. It was worth $33 billion. So Bowen was a fine businessman. He was known as a fine businessman. Historians still see that as one of his attributes in addition to uh, he's mainly known today, I would say, for his publishing. I know the house stayed in the family, but how did it come to historic New England to be saved? In 1968, the last Bowen, Henry and Lucy's granddaughter, Constance Holt, passed away here at, at Rosen Cottage. And, and with the help of several preservation, perhaps also the one that you, you mentioned earlier that you worked for, with the help of several preservation societies, historic New England purchased the house. The family donated the contents. That's why when you come to Rosen Cottage, I think I can count on the fingers of one hand, on the fingers of one hand, the things that aren't what people would consider original, that didn't belong to the family. Almost everything at Rosen Cottage, and that's kind of a hallmark of historic New England homes, museums, belong to the family that lived here. So we purchased the house. We have no endowment. Most of our houses have big endowments. But the house was so important architecturally and historically that Historic New England decided it needed to be saved and with the help of those other organizations purchased the house. And as, I, as I mentioned before, in addition to the bowling alley, the other project I came to look at 35 years ago was the restoration of this crazy material called Lincrusta. <laughs> Can you explain to the listener what Lincrusta is? Well, Lincrusta Walton is the official name of our wall covering in the downstairs public rooms. It's part of that 1880s redecoration. It's a mixture of linseed oil and wood pulp. The Lincrusta stand, would stand for linseed oil, just as it does in linoleum. Same man developed both uh, surfaces. But when you come in the front door of Rosen Cottage, I think it's the first thing that jumps out at you. It's a highly textured wall covering. In fact, you just want to run your hands all over it. It's such a tactile, appealing finish. It's uh, painted to look, well, it's, its intention was to look like tooled leather. 
uh, but it was much more durable. Uh, you could clean it. Of course, in the era we're talking about, people became more interested in hygiene and cleaning things. And this was something that could be cleaned, didn't attract pests like tool leather did. Uh, we have 10 different patterns here at Rosen Cottage. Then Cresta used to have us on their website as one of the, uh, well, as the best remaining example of Lind Cresta in the world. So it's something that's very special. Can I tell you a story about it, Mary? The first tour I ever gave at Rosen Cottage, and you're a little bit nervous the first time you're giving a tour. There's a lot of information. You hope you're going to get it all straight and, and be coherent. And to make me even a little bit more nervous, the first person who came through Rosen Cottage was a national park curator. And we walked in the front door and she burst into tears when she saw the Lincrusta. She, and you know, it made me look at it with fresh eyes. It made me look at everything with fresh eyes, which I do now, I try to do all the time. You never know what's gonna be a peak experience for somebody. Arlen Cresta now over the years has actually rusted. It had little flakes of metal uh, embedded in it when it was new. Over the years that has rusted, we'd like to show people what it looked like originally when they come. It glittered just like gold. It's still beautiful. People are shocked when they see that it was even more stunning when it was new. But as I say, it's that raised, it's like a bas-relief wall covering. Some of it's leafy, some of it's more decorative arts uh, style, some of it's a Renaissance revival style. It's one of the things that makes Rosen very special. It's also one of the things that drives our curators a little bit crazy because over the 130 years we've had it, it's become a little brittle and it does require a lot of very, uh, lots of tender loving care. I always think that when... American companies with their ingenuity introduce these new building materials. It's always interesting to see how long they're going to last and how they're going to pan out, and how popular they're going to be. But yeah, the Lincrusta, I did not realize that the flakes of metal would make it sparkle. So that, oh. that even makes me more interested in the Lincrusta. But I know that when it was being restored, they did have pieces that had come off because it does get brittle. If you think about old linoleum, you could just crack that in your hand if you've ever taken old linoleum up. So I can, uh, they had to come up with different ways to come up with ways to press designs to make it match. And it, it's just a fascinating material to say the least. The interior is, as you can tell from the story of the Lincrusta, just pattern after pattern after pattern. So the wallpapers, the stained glass, the fabrics, it is just a time capsule. And I'm always fascinated with these time capsule type houses because if it had been my mother, for example, she would have already redecorated that kitchen 10 different color schemes to go with whatever appliances were popular. So if it was, you know, avocado and uh, harvest gold, it was going to be, her kitchen was going to be those colors. So it's interesting to me that these families keep something so original and that they've kept furnishings. And you really see, as I said, just such a time capsule, to say the least. What other big preservation efforts did you have to make to save the house? Interesting that you ask, because uh, we put together a website, rosencottage.org, a few years ago, and we have a section on preservation in that. And so I was delving through pictures and writings about what type of preservation activities had taken place. And boy, it was eye-opening to me. Um, the house, when it was built, had the very latest 
technology that you could have. And one of those was gutters and downspouts, downspouts in particular, that were actually inside the house. You didn't see any kind of downspouts on the exterior. They would channel all the water into cisterns in the house that then would be pumped upstairs. We, we see those things on our behind the scenes tour in September. Uh, but certainly over 130 years, those interior downspouts rusted away. So water was just pouring into the interior of the walls and causing quite a bit of damage. And the house, in fact, was being pulled in half because of the settling that the water rushing into the house from, from rainstorms was causing. So all of that, had, there had to be, we had to jack up different parts of the house, had to redo drainage. When I look at the pictures, it, it truly it is shocking to me to see trenches dug eight feet down to lay drainage in and jacking up of the porches and the conservatory, all of the different work that went on. It's a continual process. We've certainly stemmed and, and replaced and repaired things that were structurally dangerous. But as, as anybody who works in a house museum or has an old house knows, the maintenance uh, is staggeringly expensive and it is ongoing all the time. We put a new roof on, I'm thinking nine years ago, and uh, that was almost a quarter million dollar project uh, with the Cedar Shakes. But if I could go back to something you mentioned about how the house has retained its character, I think we owe that to Constance Holt, whom I mentioned earlier, who was the last Bowen to live here. I think she had a sense of the family's importance locally. She always maintained a kind of a Victorian presence, even though, you know, she she lived until 1968. She didn't tear out the Lincrusta or put in the harvest gold or avocado green uh, furnishings. She kept all the old furnishings. She didn't redo the bathrooms necessarily so or tear out uh, any of the things that that give Rosen Cottage its special qualities. So we we always refer to her here as Miss Constance as a as a sign of uh, our respect for her. And there are certain traditions that we continue that she started. Uh, for instance, we hold a tea for Woodstock Academy graduating seniors every spring. She started it in 1938 with 12 or 13 graduating seniors. We have it every year. This year it was with 320 graduating seniors. So we try to honor her memory because we think it was she who kept the house in a condition that allowed it to be uh, restored and shared with the public. Something I want to make sure the listeners know about is your website, roselandcottage.org. During the pandemic, you really just put so much material on that website. And there's actually a very sophisticated, modern 360 degree tour you can take of the house. Now you might think, oh, if I can see a 360 degree tour on the website, why would I go see the house? No, it's gonna make you wanna go to see the house more because you're gonna wanna stand in those spaces and really get the experience and pretend that you're Miss Constance. So what other things have you got coming up? Well, we have a lot more coming up than we thought we would have coming up because we've had to postpone so many concerts because of rain. August 18th, we'll have Patty Tweet, who's a bluegrass band playing. And on September 24th, something we're really excited about, uh, we will have a steel drum concert. That's a Sunday. That'll be at two o'clock. Um, September 16th, we're having one of the last Green Valley's Walktober events 
our gardener will be talking about the Homegrown National Park program. And she's got a board game that families can play. It's a lot of fun. And in playing it, you learn about regenerating biodiversity and ecosystems by planting native plants. So we're really excited about that. That goes along with the pollinator garden that we're starting to put in in what used to be our holding bed here. So that's something else that we're very excited about. On September 10th, we'll do something called a slow tour. It's also September 7th, although that one is sold out. If you want to take more time going through Rosen Cottage, if you want to see things that we can't really delve into on our regular tour, that's an hour long. We're going to spend two hours. You can contact me before the tour to tell me what you might be interested in discussing. If you want to take a little bit more time going up the long, steep staircase we have, this is the tour to take. Uh, I'm really excited about it. It should be a lot of fun. And of course, our biggest event every year is our Arts and Crafts Festival. This will be our 41st annual Arts and Crafts Festival, October 14 and 15. That's a Saturday and Sunday. We have 150 juried artisans. It's considered to be one of the finest arts and crafts fairs uh, in New England. We have a food court, live music. We have a clown who makes balloon animals for the kids who come. And uh, we hope we'll be able to start again live tours of the first floor. We may only be able to do the bowling alley this year. I think people are excited to see the bowling alley. So we'll have to decide if we're going to do first floor or bowling alley tours. But part of the house will be open uh, for tours during that Arts and Crafts Festival. Now you're open for the rest of the season Thursday through Sunday until October 12th. And you're open the weekend of October 21st and 22nd. And of course, you can check their website. If you don't get there this season and you go next season, check their website. Rosalind we'll still be pink, I promise. Okay, you'll still be pink. You'll still be the Victoria Barbie house. The website is rosalindcottage.org. Thank you so much, Lori. I'm sure I'll try to get out in October for the art fair. We look forward to seeing you there, Mary. Thank you. I want to thank my guest historian and site manager, Lori Mashandaro. To find out more about these upcoming events at Roseland Cottage, go to roselandcottage.org. Please go to our show notes for this episode for links to more information. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Thank you.